Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 16 through 46. This can be found on page 557 in your pew Bibles. So, Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls, let them choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but do not set fire to it. Then I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder. <laughs> Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with sword and spears as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come home, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sayas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again. They did it again. Do it a third time. And they did it 
the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning to their and you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let them get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink. There is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. He told his servant, Go, look toward the sea. And the servant went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said. Go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and uh, that includes those of you who are worshiping virtually today. Last week's uh, text came to us like a fairy tale. This week's text comes to us like a slap in the face, a wake-up call. We all know what fairy tales are, right? In fairy tales, things happen that don't happen anywhere else. Slimy frogs turn into handsome princes. Ugly ducklings become beautiful swans. Time-worn lamps burst open with friendly genies. First Kings 17 is like a fairy tale. A widow's jar of flour is not used up. A mother's jug of oil does not run dry and a little boy is raised from death. 
Elijah's job in 1 Kings 17 was to remind Israel of the fairy tale nature of her God. Elijah, remember, we have said, always points us back to Moses. <clears throat> well, when Moses stood on the east side of the Jordan River as the people were about to enter the land, he gave them a sermon. We know that sermon as the book of Deuteronomy. And in one of those parts of Deuteronomy, actually chapter 32, God says this to his people through Moses, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but it says, when you take possession of this land, if you make me angry by worshiping other gods, then I will take all of my goodness and all of my kindness, and I will shine my goodness on someone else. And when your widows are starving because you are worshiping Baal, I will take all of my goodness to shine on the widows of Sidon. And when you see the fairy tale coming true in that place, then you will wish that I was still your God and you will return to me. 1 Kings 17 is like a fairy tale. 1 Kings 18 is the prelude to that fairy tale. 1 Kings 18 begins where those fairy tales begin with the truth. The prince is actually a frog. The swan is actually an ugly duck. Cinderella is really a slave. 1 Kings 18 begins with the reality of our sin. Last week, we found Elijah bringing life to a foreign land, to the land of Sidon. And this week, we see him returning to his homeland, returning to Israel, a land that is starving, a land that is troubled, a land that has not seen rain for three years. And the question I want to begin with today is why? Why does Elijah come back? Why does Elijah come back? Why would he risk his life by coming back to Israel, by coming back to Ahab? Is it because Ahab and all of the Israelites have repented of their sin and they have asked for God to bring his word back into Israel and let it function there again? Is that what's going on? Have the people connected the dots and recognized that Baal worship only leads to death? Is that why Elijah comes back? The answer is no. No. Nobody's repented here. The answer is that God sent Elijah. God sent him. If you look back at verse 1 of chapter 18, we didn't read this this morning, but there the story begins with these words. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go! And present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. The people don't repent. God has to come and call them to repent. The people do not deserve God's action in this text. It's not like they have repented, and so God says, great, I'll send you a prophet. It's purely out of God's love and out of God's grace and out of his mercy that he sends Elijah to trouble Israel out of her sin. 
Friends, one of the first things that our doctrines tell us about sin is that it renders us helpless. It tells us that we are dead in the water. Okay? The canons of Dort talk about total depravity. depravity. That doesn't mean that, that all of us are as bad as we possibly can be. What it means instead is that every part of our being has been impacted by sin, such that not only are we separated from God, but we are actually unable to make the first move back in God's direction. We are dead in the water. If we are to be saved, the only way that that's going to happen is God must come to us. God must act. The Heidelberg Catechism begins in the very same place. It starts out this way. How do we know, how do we come to know that we are sinners? How do we understand our misery? How do we even know that this is not the way things are supposed to be? And the answer comes back quite plainly, the law of God tells me. The law of God has to tell us that we are sinners or we don't know. Where, friends, is the law of God in 1 Kings chapter 18? Do you see it anywhere? Did you hear it anywhere referred to? It's actually in verse 18. Elijah comes to Ahab and he says, Ahab, you have abandoned the Lord's commands. You have abandoned the Lord's commands. And that, friends, is the trouble with Ahab. That's the trouble he brought to Israel. That's why they are in dire straits, because the law is not there to tell them their situation. And so God, in his mercy, must act. God must send Elijah or there will be no more rain in Israel, or there will be no salvation. God has to act. This, this kind of reminds me of my high school yearbook. I can't look at my high school yearbook anymore. Maybe you have that same experience. We thought we were so cool. And then you look back at that yearbook and you think, why didn't someone tell me we were such idiots? We have to be told or we simply don't know. God had to send Elijah to show Israel her sin. And friends, God has to send the new Elijah. He has to send Jesus to show us our sins, even today. One of the first things that Jesus does, if you recall, when he begins his ministry, is he, he teaches the crowds, he teaches his disciples, he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Jesus was sent to us by God with the law. Before he could save us from our sins, he had to tell us that we are actually sinners. He had to open our eyes to that cold reality that we are broken, that we are we are going against God. We are enemies of God. Which ought to make us, you would think, hungry for God's law, right? Even today, even now. God, show us our sin. But what happens instead? I mean, more often, it seems as if we abandon God's law. 
We become antinomian, anti-law. We don't need that old-fashioned law to tell us what to do anymore. I mean, we have, we have Jesus. And what happens when we begin to lose track of God's law? We become holy in our own eyes, but not in God's eyes. We become holy in our own eyes, and there's nothing to correct us, nothing to change that, nothing to move us to become more loving, more gracious. We begin to imagine that others are the problem, not me. We find ourselves standing in the middle of a lifeless desert, and the very one that we resent is the one who comes to offer us water. Friends, don't ever use Jesus as an excuse to abandon the law of Moses. Jesus summarized the law. Some of us think that he came to reduce it. Those two things are different. He didn't just say, yeah, love God, love your neighbor, and you'll be okay. What he said is, love the Lord your God above everything else. Love him with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. He said, sit down regularly and take a ruthless inventory of your own idols the things that you have lifted up and set besides God or beside God on the throne of your life. Take an inventory of those things so that one by one you can kill them, remove them until only God is your God. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And when he said that, he didn't mean, you know, self-love comes pretty naturally we all seem to love ourselves, and, and that's the way it is with loving your neighbor, too. It, it, it'll come naturally. You don't have to put much thought into it. That's not what Jesus said. He goes over and over throughout his teaching, throughout his parables, to teach us what it actually means to love our neighbors. Remember what Paul wrote to the Philippians? He said this, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in what? In knowledge and in depth of insight. There is sort of a move today that's kind of an anti-intellectual move when it comes to love. We don't really have to think about love. We don't have to be informed as to what it means to love. We don't have to be told how our neighbors are suffering, what led to that suffering. We can just love them naturally. Friends, that is so false. Jesus told us over and over, love is hard, and this is what it means to love. It takes thought, it takes insight, it takes growing more and more in knowledge. Friends, it is a fairy tale to think that we can figure out love all on our own that we really don't need God to break into our lives and trouble us with His law until we love more and more and more the way that He intends us to love. We need God 
always to break into our lives and show us our sin. The second cold reality of sin that we need to see today is that it condemns every one of us. Every one of us. Elijah, when you look at this text, is a lonely guy, isn't he? He is a lonely guy. He tells us in verse 22, I am the only one of God's prophets left. And when you read that in the original language, the I there is emphatic. That means it's, it's repeated, it's emphasized. The ESV puts it this way, I, even I only, am left as a prophet of the Lord. Elijah's a lonely guy. And he, you look at him and you think, ah, he's kind of exaggerating. I mean, it's not that bad, is it? Can't be that bad. There must be someone on Elijah's side. Well, let's run through the characters. Ahab? Probably not. Uh, the prophets of Baal? Maybe not. The 400 prophets of Asherah? No. Well, what about the people of Israel? There's got to be someone in the people of Israel who are on Elijah's side, right? Well, Elijah throws out his ultimatum. If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And all the people agreed, right? No. Verse 21, the people said nothing. Nada. Not a word. Silence. Elijah doesn't just feel alone. Elijah is alone. Elijah stands against everyone in Israel. Friends, I just want to pause here for a moment and, and consider the role of a prophet. Imagine for a moment how difficult it was and how difficult it is to be a prophet. Today we all love Elijah, right? We teach him about him in Sunday school. We sing about him in our songs. He's a hero to us. But at this moment in the text, he's no hero. Can you imagine the anger the disdain, the hatred that people must have felt toward Elijah. He was the only one who feels the way that he does. He was the troubler of all of Israel. Everyone knew the truth except Elijah. Everyone was enlightened except poor little Elijah. Friends, what's the easiest thing to do in a case like that? The easiest thing for a prophet to do is to just shut up. To just shut up and go home. Go into hiding for a while, but just quit talking. Talking is just going to get you in more and more trouble. But friends, what we don't seem to understand about a true prophet is you can't do that. You can't quit talking. Why? Because a true prophet 
loves the people that he's prophesying to and loves the God that he's prophesying for. You recall what God says to the prophet Ezekiel? This is what he says to Ezekiel in chapter 33. God says, when I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die. And you, Ezekiel, do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways. That wicked person will die for their sin. And I will hold you accountable for their blood. You hear that? When the prophet does not speak the word of the Lord, God will hold that prophet accountable. Friends, we have to remember this in the community of Jesus Christ. When prophets speak to us in the or speak to us the word of God, we have to be very very careful before we look at the prophet and say, it's your problem. You are the one who's causing the trouble in Israel. When a prophet speaks to us, the first thing we have to do is say, is this prophet speaking truth? Is what this prophet says something that I need to hear so that I will not die? It's a hard thing for us to do in our world and in our culture today. We think everything is up for a vote. And we think we all know more than the person standing next to us. But we cannot forget that God still speaks. We cannot demonize the prophets. But friends, I don't think the prophet's burden is the main point in this text. What we need to see instead is that Elijah stands alone because he represents Yahweh. Elijah speaks for God. Everyone in this text needs to be troubled by Elijah. Everyone. Everyone needs to hear the word from the Lord because all of us are sinners. Another one of our doctrines. All of us are broken. Let me try and explain that. You know, my daughter and I stumbled across another Netflix series, much to our demise, but it's called Cobra Kai. Maybe some of you have seen it. We've been binging it together. I'm not recommending it. I'm just telling you a story. It's based on the old film Karate Kid. You remember that film? An old, old film, I should probably say. It even has some of the same actors that were in the original film. So for me, it's very nostalgic. It's got a lot of 80s humor. I kind of like that. I'm chuckling often. Crystal doesn't know what I'm chuckling about. Um, but that's, that's the show, Cobra Kai, right? In that movie, if you remember, if you saw it, The Karate Kid, um, it was very, very simplistic, right? It was basically good against evil. It was Johnny versus Danielson. 
The characters were very black and white. You were either for one and against the other or for the other and against the one. In, in this TV series, Cobra Kai, the characters are much more complex. Okay? You really can't hate Johnny and you really can't love Daniel because you just know too much about them. There's good and there's evil in each of them. They're very flawed characters. Friends, one of the mistakes that we make in life is that we think life is like the karate kid. And we have these very simplistic categories that we like to place everyone in, including ourselves. Usually those categories are nice and not nice. And where do we usually find ourselves? Nice, right? But, but we have a very simplistic view of, of the world around us and the people around us. What the doctrine of sin tells us instead is that the issue is far more complex than that. What it tells us is no matter how nice or not nice we might be, all of us, every one of us is flawed. Every one of us is flawed. Paul put it this way, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, all of us stand opposite to Elijah. And we need his troubling. All of us have idols that we think can sit comfortably right next to God, right next to Yahweh. All of us have those idols. It's not just Muslims, it's not just Buddhists or Hindus or atheists or whatever other group we can think of. It's not just the wealthy. It's not just the people on the left or the people on the right. It's not just the sexually immoral or even the sexually pure. All of us are sinners. Some of us break two commands. Some of us break all ten. But all of us need Elijah to wave his finger in our direction and to say, you have sinned. But notice how Elijah reveals this to us. He doesn't just show us what we are, but he shows us what we are supposed to be. Notice with me, before Elijah asks God to send fire down from heaven, what does he do? He gathers all of the people around him and he begins to repair the altar of the Lord. This is a very symbolic action. What Elijah is doing is he's bringing us back to the Jordan River where the people have just crossed the river as one people, one nation, with one task, one mission that God has called them to, to be a light that shines to the entire world. And they took 12 stones out of the Jordan and they said this will be a monument to the fact that God has brought us here, that God is working in us and through us. Elijah now takes 12 stones and he rebuilds this altar. One altar to the true God 
You see, those 12 tribes that cross the river have now become 10 tribes and two tribes. One people has become two people. And friends, when you have more than one God, more than one altar, that's what happens. You have more than one people. Elijah doesn't just show the people what they are. He shows them what they should be. What they are meant to be. They are the ones who have been endowed with the task of rescuing all the peoples of the world. And they have been given that task as a people. As one people. And that, friends, is something we so quickly forget. In the arrogance of our age, we actually persuade ourselves that we do not need our fellow Christians, that we can save the world all by ourselves. Sometimes the smaller the group, the better. That's not God's plan. His plan is one people worshiping at the altar of the one true God, shining one bright light into the darkness of the world. And friends, we need Elijah to wake us up. We need to put more work into rebuilding that altar. That leads us to the third thing Elijah needs to teach us about, and that is how serious, how serious a deal sin really is. Sin is no fairy tale. It's not a game. There is a game that's going on today, I've heard, It's important to some of us. Huge Packer game, right? Everything is on the line. You know what? At the end of the day, no matter who wins that game this afternoon, tell you what's going to happen. Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, they're going to walk to the center of the field and they're going to shake hands and one of them might be a little more sad than the other, but they're going to tell each other that they played a good game and The winner will remind the loser of how much money he still makes and they're all going to laugh and walk off the field. It's not what happens in our text, is it? Prophets of Baal are not just the other team. They're not just ministers from another denomination. They are the destroyers of God's people. They compete with God for the allegiance of his people. They distract us from our mission in the world, our mission to bring Jesus or to bring sinners to Jesus so that he can save them from death. This is a serious thing. Sin leads to death, my own death and the death of everyone around me. It's a serious deal. At the same time, friends, if you look closely here, there is movement in this text. There's movement back to Moses. There's hope here. 
The hope comes from Deuteronomy chapter 13. In Deuteronomy 13, Moses tells us this. He says, you can tell a false prophet, okay, not by the signs that they might do, but you can tell a false prophet because that prophet will lead you away from full devotion to the Lord your God. If that prophet says anything that leads you in the direction away from loving God with your heart, your soul, your strength, that prophet is a false prophet. And that prophet needs to be put to death. Now, the question is, have the people returned to Moses? Have they heard that? First, their response in verse 21 to Elijah's words, silence. In verse 24, when he lays out his challenge, right? The God who sends fire, that's the true God. Then you get a little response. They agree. This is good, they say. In verse 39, they finally confess that the Lord is God. The Lord is God. But that's not enough. That's not what Deuteronomy says. What Deuteronomy 13 says is, yes, but if you believe these are false prophets, you will put them to death so that they cannot lead anyone else astray. And that's what they do. Elijah calls them to that action. He says it's not enough to just profess. You have to act. And they do. You do. And there's gospel here as well, friends. Just have to look a little bit deeper. But Deuteronomy 13 doesn't just talk about false prophets. Deuteronomy 13 says if anyone leads you from full devotion to the Lord your God, if it's a family member, in fact, if it's your whole town, they must be put to death. It's horrible in our ears. But what God says is, you have to round up the whole town, all the people, all their possessions, and you make them basically one big burnt offering to the Lord your God. Now, if you notice, that's not what happens here in this text. Yes, the prophets of Baal are slaughtered, but that's what should have happened to all the people of Israel who stood opposed to Elijah. But they were not, were they? They were not. You notice what Elijah prays before the fire comes? He prays for two things. He says, Lord, in this fire, may the people recognize that Yahweh is God, that you are the only God, and that he is turning their hearts back to him. Elijah prays that the people would see that God is turning their hearts back. Their hearts. How does God do that? Well, those people should have been very aware that what they were due was a fire to come and consume them. What Elijah prays for and what they get instead is a bull on an altar that the Lord sends fire 
and he consumes. These people are not the sacrifice. There's a sacrifice made for them. God burns up a bull instead of a mountain. And friends, we have to remember that in Jesus Christ as well. That instead of making a sacrifice of us, Jesus made a sacrifice for us, didn't he? The bull pointed ahead to Christ. Jesus saw us with all of our conflicted allegiances, with all of our little idols that we cling to, and he climbed up on that cross not only to suffer the punishment for those false allegiances, but to turn our hearts back to him. That cross was meant to show us not just God's justice, but his love, his mercy. That's what Israel saw that day. They saw love and mercy. And we see the same thing in the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, our sins are incredibly and destructively real. But the love and the mercy of God Incredibly real also, savingly real. Think about this, friends, as we eat and as we drink today. Think about Jesus Christ burned up with fire from heaven in our place so that we would know his love for us. And we would run back to Moses and say, teach me more about how to love my God and love my neighbor. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord God, you desire to be not just God, but our only God. You desire full devotion from our hearts. And so, Lord, show us your love and your mercy once more, that we may fall more deeply in love, head over heels with you because of what you have done, how you have taken away what we deserve and stood in our place so that we might have life. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.